Revelation 18, starting in verse 21, we read, Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence the great city Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found any more. The sound of harpists, musicians, flutists, and trumpeters shall not be heard in you any more. No craftsman of any craft shall be found in you any more. And the sound of a millstone shall not be heard in you any more. The light of a lamp shall not shine in you any more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride shall not be heard in you any more. For your merchants were the great men of the earth. For by your sorcery all the nations were deceived. And in her was found the blood of prophets and saints and of all who were slain on the earth. So a short passage, um, but a fitting conclusion to what we see so far in chapter 18, as we see the judgment of Babylon here, Babylon, that great harlot that we are introduced to in chapter 17, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth, the one who sits atop the great scarlet beast and who is drunk on the wine of the blood of the prophets and the martyrs of Jesus Christ. Now last week, when we or last time I should say, when we were in the book of Revelation, uh, we looked at verses 9 through 20. So after Babylon's judgment, after she has been judged and, and uh, God has meted on her what her works have deserved, we see the, the, a, a grouping, if you will, of the peoples of the earth mourning over the fall of Babylon. They're lamenting the fall of Babylon, these rich, the powerful, the influential of the world. We saw the kings of the earth, those who committed fornication, as we see in chapter 18, verse 9. Those who committed fornication and lived luxuriously. These kings of the earth who, were, who took advantage of their positions of power and authority and lived uh, in, a, in a lifestyle that was far above what the normal people would live. The, you know, we see this all the time in the world where, where corrupt political leaders live in a lifestyle that is far above what their citizens live in. And they're lamenting because sh- the, their, their gravy train has, has gone on. It, it has been destroyed. The, their, their source of their luxury has been cast down. We see the merchants of the world lament because there's no one now to buy their stuff. Babylon has been overthrown and their, their business has been overthrown and no one buys their merchandise anymore. They had become wealthy selling things. They had become wealthy selling stuff. And it's also something you see in our world today, right? This rank consumerism, this rank materialism as we accumulate stuff because we're told we need stuff. And then to borrow from George Carlin, you need a place to put your stuff, right? And, you need, and when you move and when you go on vacation, it's like you're taking a smaller version of all your stuff with you wherever you go. We've got stuff coming out of our ears. So they lament because no one buys their things anymore. They had become wealthy. They had become wealthy and had, uh, by selling their wares to the people of Babylon. 
And then the third group is the captains of the sea. They lament because their livelihood is gone. They are the ones who were transporting the stuff from one place to the other. They transported all those precious stones and precious metals and, and uh, expensive spices and perfumes and oils and all that stuff from all over the world. They brought it to Babylon, and now their livelihood is gone. They had become rich, of course, by transporting these goods from one place to the other. All three groups uh, lament, and they utter the same lament. They all say, alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for one hour your judgment has come. So that word alas, of course, that's the word in Greek that we translate typically woe. So they're saying woe, woe is Babylon. Cursed, cursed is Babylon. She has fallen. She has fallen. That's what the angels said uh, very early on. Babylon is fallen, is fallen. So they lament the fall of this great city. But the judgment is swift. Right, one hour, a very short period of time. It's going to come when they least expect it because Jesus warned that his return would be as a thief in the night. So all of this talk about judgment and what we're going to see in this passage tonight, of course, is also uh, a, a sort of a finalization of Babylon's judgment, if you will. Uh, it, it, all of this brings us back to the whole purpose of what this, this cycle of judgment we're looking at here. This is the fifth cycle in Revelation. Uh, and this whole cycle essentially is devoted to showing the judgment of Babylon. So its focus is the judgment of Babylon. We, this, this cycle which starts in chapter 17 and goes through chapter 19, verse 10. Now when I say you know, that these aren't hard and fast outlines you know, some people will have different outlines than others. Um, for me, it looks like the, the cycle starts in 17 and ends in 19, verse 10. But we see in chapter 17, verse 1, the, the whole reason for the cycle, because one of the angels who poured out one of the seven bowls tells John, come up here, and I'm going to show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. That is the purpose of this cycle, to, to show... Um, the, the panoply of, of redemptive history focusing at the end as this world order, this world system is overthrown. As Babylon is overthrown, the great harlot is overthrown. That is the, the purpose of the cycle. And of course, Babylon, as we've been saying all along, is a represent, representative of the evil world system. All of the institutions, all of the segments of society that stand opposed to God and his law. It is the anti-God, anti-Christ world that has always existed alongside the people of God, in which the people of God often find themselves living inside of, which is why in chapter 18, God, the angel tells the people of God, come out of her, just like he told Lot to come out of Sodom how he draws his people out of Egypt. He tells the people to come out of Babylon while the judgment's about to fall on them. If you are familiar with St. Augustine, um, he wrote a book called The City of God, and the city of man is basically Babylon. It, it's everything that is of this world that is against God, and it sits alongside of uh, the city of God, the city of man. It's, now, it's not always 100% evil, Right? Oftentimes, it's the idea of what is good without God. 
So they reject God and they try to form their own morality. So it's not, put it this way, it's not always as wicked as wicked can be. And we know that the Bible tells us that we are fallen, we are wicked, we are totally depraved, but we're never as totally bad as we can be. Because God's hand of of providence, God's hand of common grace, always is in the picture here somewhere. But Babylon is judged for her sins because she rejects Christianity, she rejects God, she rejects the biblical worldview, worldview, and she is judged for her sins. In particular, she is judged for her treatment of the martyrs and the saints of God as she is, again, she is pictured as having this cup, this chalice that is full of the blood of the martyrs, and she's drunk. She's just you know, living it up, drinking all of this, uh, the blood of the saints. Now again, with all this talk about judgment and the final judgment of uh, Babylon that we see here in these verses 21 through 24, I do want to maybe just talk briefly about the topic of judgment in general. Because Revelation, of course, is a book that says a lot about judgment, in particular, final judgment. Uh, But there are other types of judgment that we see in the pages of Scripture. Now, I came up with a list of six, and I I was arguing or discussing with some friends, like, is this list complete? Should Should I add, subtract to them? But I came up with a list of six types of judgment that we see in the pages of Scripture. And you can let me know if you think I've nailed it or if I'm missing something. The first type of judgment we see in the pages of Scripture is what I call temporal judgment. Temporal judgment. This is essentially the direct act of God in judging our sins in the here and now. Okay, The direct act of God in judging our sins in the here and now. So we sin, God judges us right then and there. Okay, Think of Adam in the garden. When he sinned, God said, in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. And sure enough, Adam was cursed, Eve was cursed, the serpent was cursed. Judgment came then and there. Think also of the story of Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu. They offered the strange fire uh, in the altar of God, and they were judged right then and there on the spot. Their judgment, though, was the judgment of death. Same with Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament. Same with Uzzah, the the, the Levite who was watching behind the ox cart where the, the, the ark of God was. And when it hit a rock and the ox cart was going to fall, he reaches out to touch it, and he's zapped on the spot. All of these are instances of temporal judgment. Not all of them are in the form of you die immediately. I'm just pointing out the ones that are kind of common that came to mind in the Bible as examples of this temporal judgment, a direct act of God in judging our sins in the here and now. Second type of judgment that we see in the Bible, or that I've kind of highlighted in the Bible, is something I'm calling retributive or retributive judgment. Think of the word retribution. Retributive judgment. This too is also a direct judgment of God, but oftentimes it's mediated through a person or a nation who acts as God's instrument of that judgment. So typically... It's a, it's a justice type of thing where a, a nation or a person sins and another person becomes the instrument of God for that, enacting God's retribution on that person or that nation for that sin. Now, in one sense, you can think of 
the state or the government as an arm or as an example of retributive judgment as God sets up the state, God sets up governing authorities to act on his behalf, to carry and wield the sword on his behalf, to judge and to uh, keep righteous. Now that is when a government is working well. Okay, Obviously, an evil government can also be a form of judgment because God gives wicked rulers to those who act wickedly. But also think of the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel was an instrument of God's judgment on the Canaanites when they went and, in, and invaded and took over the Holy Land. They were God's instruments. It's a, it was a holy war, which is why it's not something that is repeatable in the here and now because they were under specific orders by God to go in and wipe out the Canaanites in the Promised Land as God's instrument of judgment on the Canaanites. And then when Israel sinned, God brought other nations. We kind of briefly talked about it this morning when we were referencing Habakkuk. The Chaldeans or the Babylonians were an instrument of God's judgment on the sin of Israel. And then in the prophet Isaiah, God talks about how the Persians are an instrument of judgment against the Babylonians. <laughs> okay. So, you know, God uses these instruments. He uses these means. Other cases are people. Sometimes people are used um, as an instrument of God's judgment or God's tools. I'm thinking of, in this case, from 1 Kings 19, verses 16 and 17. Don't need to turn there, but God tells Elijah the prophet, he says, I want you to anoint three people for me. I want you to anoint Hazael, king of Assyria. I want you to anoint Jehu, king of Israel. And I want you to anoint Elisha as a replacement prophet for you. And then it goes on and says, whoever... Whoever escapes Hazael, then the sword of Jehu will get. Whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, then the sword of Elisha will get. So in other words, these, ins- these people were instruments. God used them to enact judgment. In fact, Jehu was charged, if you will, to wipe out the descendants of Ahab. That was his task. He was God's retributive judgment on the house of Ahab for the wickedness that Ahab had committed. So that's two. So you've got temporal, retributive, retributive. Yeah, I'm making sure I'm saying that right. You need to know how to spell it. It's R-E-T-R-I-B-U-T-I-V-E, retributive or retributive. The third type can be called consequential judgment, consequential judgment. <clears throat> this would be like cause and effect judgment or sowing and reaping judgment, things that are sort of built in or baked in the cake of creation, okay? If you do stupid things, you win stupid prizes. That's kind of the idea I'm coming with, with consequential judgment. Um, Certain results follow from certain actions. That's what Jesus says, right? If you you, uh, sow bad seed, you will get bad fruit. If you sow good seed, you will get good fruit. You will not find good fruit on a bad tree. You will not find bad fruit on a good tree. Uh, it's also, I would also put certain, I would put diseases and natural disasters in this category as well as a result of just living in a sin-cursed world, right? It's just a consequence of being in a fallen world. You get diseases and natural disasters. But again, certain actions follow certain, uh, certain results follow certain actions, built-in consequences in nature. The fourth is... I had a hard time coming up with a name for this one. 
I'm going to call it divine withdrawal. Divine withdrawal. It's not like God withdrawing money out of a bank. Uh, this is the idea of, and I got this from a friend because I had forgotten about this. This is the idea of when God takes his hand of restraint off of people. Okay, Romans 1 talks about this, right? Because of the wickedness of men, because of their ungodliness and rejecting the truth and suppressing the truth of God that is in, inherent in their own hearts, God uh, gives them over. God re removes his hand of restraint and allows them to go further and further into their own sin. Uh, if you think this world is hopelessly lost, just imagine how it would be if God removed his hand of restraint from everybody. In fact, this is just a theory. I'm not, I, I don't hold this dogmatically. But I, in a sense, I kind of think that might be what hell is where we are just left to the consequences of our sin with no restraint and just living fully in our sin. And, 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 and you know, the people talk about this is hell on earth. Well, you haven't seen hell on earth. You know, just wait till God removes all restraints and allows you to go hog wild in your fallenness. Um, another example of this would be how God hardened Pharaoh's heart, right? God told Moses that I will harden Pharaoh's heart and then he will continue to. I mean, think about it, right? Think of how bad those plagues devastated Egypt. And each time, Pharaoh just hardened his heart. He continued to dig his heels in. God had removed his hand of restraint and allowed Pharaoh to just continue down his path of stubborn rejection. So that's divine withdrawal. Fifth, the fifth type of judgment I'm calling typological judgment. Typological judgment. So a judgment, basically these are worldly temporal judgments that in a way prefigure or typify a more terrifying final judgment. So they're judgments that happen in time. They really happen, historically happen, but they point forward and prefigure what I'm going to eventually call final judgment. An example of that would be the flood. The flood is a, a type of what final judgment is going to look like, where you know, Jesus uses that as an example of explaining his own return. When he says it's going to be like in the days of Noah. People were marrying and giving in marriage and they were partying it up and all of a sudden the rain fell and then that was it. The ark was closed and judgment came and it's going to be like that in the day of the return of Jesus. The ten plagues of Egypt are also in a sense typological because Revelation, as we've been going through it, draws a lot of their imagery from the plagues of Egypt. In fact, the bulls themselves are called plagues. You can look at Sodom and Gomorrah, in a, in a sense, as a form of typological judgment. So these are judgments that happen in the world, happen in history, but are prefigured, are examples, as we saw in Corinthians this morning, examples for us now for the end of the age. And then finally, there is final judgment, or eschatological, to use that word, meaning the last thing, the final judgment. This is final, eternal judgment, the type which begins when Christ returns, the type also which Christ endured on the cross. When Christ was on the cross, he was enduring final or eschatological judgment for the sins of his people. And that's the judgment that will occur on those who are not in Christ at the end of the age when they come before the great white throne judgment. It's often referred to as the day of the Lord. So the day is coming. The day of judgment is coming. That is final 
eschatological judgment. So just a little review, if you will, on judgment here. But all of that is, as we head into this passage, I mention all this because we often only think of judgment as something that happens at the end when, when Jesus returns. And that's not the case, right? Romans 1 says the wrath of God is being revealed. God's wrath is currently being revealed in the world through these other forms of judgment. God's wrath is also being stored up for a day that is coming, for the day when, when you know, if you do not repent. God's kindness, right? Um, and this passage we see here before us is final judgment on Babylon. But the imagery, of course, of this final judgment, like most of the imagery in Revelation, is also drawn from the Old Testament. We see, and we're going to look at some of these tonight, uh, prophecies in the Old Testament, particularly in Isaiah and Jeremiah, that prophesy the fall of Babylon. Now, they are prophesying the fall of the kingdom of Babylon, the actual kingdom of Babylon that you know, we see instituted with Nebuchadnezzar and then his descendants. They get judged. Their judgment is, is foretold in the, in the pages of Isaiah and Jeremiah. But that is also used as the imagery here of this final judgment on this uh, Babylon, the great harlot, that we're seeing here in Revelation chapter 18. So tonight we're going to see the finality of Babylon's fall, never to rise again. So that brings us now, finally, <laughs> to the first verse that we're going to look at here. Verse 21, the end of Babylon. So we see here, after the angel in the previous verse, in chapter 18, verse 20, tells the people there to rejoice over the fall of Babylon, rejoice in heaven while the, while the, the kings of the earth, the merchants and the sea masters are lamenting, the people in heaven are throwing a party because Babylon has been overthrown and vengeance has been, uh, has been made and, and, and they have been vindicated for their faith. The, the heavens rejoice. We're going to see that again in two weeks in chapter 19 as we're going to see a party in heaven as Babylon has fallen, the end, of the, the end of the age is here, and then we're going to see the celebration as the bridegroom now comes to reclaim his bride, and they have that marriage feast. But they, they exalt also over the fall of Babylon. And there's a great big worship service going on in heaven over the fall of Babylon. But here, this is the finality of the fall. And after we see this call to rejoice over here, we see now another angel enter the scene, a mighty angel, in verse 21, uh, a mighty angel then took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, Thus, with violence, the great city Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found anymore. So this mighty angel, mighty because he's, he's taking this giant millstone, uh, this would be like the millstones that you see in these large, you know, grain grinding things that are actually, you know, have to be pulled by horses, not like a hand millstone that you would use in those days. So this big giant stone, this angel then takes a stone and metaphorically ties it around Babylon and then casts it into the sea like you would, you know, if you're trying to get rid of somebody, you know, you tie a cement, you know, you give them cement shoes, right? You know, that's kind of what's going on here. Babylon has been given cement shoes and is being tossed into the depths of the sea. And that, that, that word there, 
where we see, where is it, uh, through it, you know, it's sort of like a violent casting motion. It's cast out, like you're, like you're taking it, throwing it as far as you can into the ocean so that it sinks. You want it to sink in the deepest parts. It, it will be, it has this giant stone. It's weighed down. It goes down, and it will be never to be seen again, shall not be found anymore. Again, this speaks to the finality of Babylon's judgment. It will not come back. This is it. Babylon is gone. She has used up her nine lives, if you will, as a cat. She has no more to give. She has been gone. This is final judgment. Eschatological judgment. And we've already seen the return of Christ, if you will, in this cycle. right? Chapter 17, verse 14, in a sense, is a very subdued way of showing the return of Christ. But in that verse, you see how the, uh, these, that is the kings of the earth, represented by the ten horns, make war with the Lamb. Well, the Lamb is Jesus. So this is the final battle, right? We've seen the final battle several times already. This is this cycle's version of the final battle. They make war with the Lamb, but the Lamb will overcome them. Why? Because He is Lord of lords and King of kings. That's why. And those who are with Him are called the chosen and the faithful. They should also be called the spectators, because they're not going to enter into this battle. It's, when, we see it in, when we see the final battle in chapter 19, at the end of chapter 19, all Jesus has to do is what? He just opens his mouth. right? And the sword of his mouth, the word of God, comes out and slays everybody. He's got the retinue behind him, but they're just there sort of to cheer him on. They're like cheerleaders as, as Jesus comes and wipes out everybody. So we've seen the war, or we've seen the return here of Christ already in this cycle as they, the kings of the earth, attempt to make war against the Lamb. And every time we see this last battle depicted in Revelation, it's always, always, always very one-sided. You see all of the power of evil concentrated against Jesus, and then Jesus just sort of emerges victorious without breaking a sweat. Sort of like I'm doing here. I'm kind of breaking a sweat in here. It's a little toasty. But it's an effortless victory on his part. But when Christ returns, that marks the end of the age, and after that comes judgment. After his return comes judgment. In Matthew 24, verse 30, when Jesus is talking about his own return, he talks about how he will return, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So Jesus talks about how he returns in the clouds of heaven, just as he was ascended out of the earth on the clouds of heaven, the angel said, why do you stand here, men of Galilee, looking up? He's going to return in the very same way that he left. So here he is, returning on the clouds of heaven, using that imagery of the Son of Man in Daniel 7. He returns on the clouds of heaven, and everyone is mourning as he comes with great power and glory. And then there's, Jesus goes into a couple of interludes here. As in verses 36 to 51 of Matthew 24, he talks about the suddenness of his return. And then he tells two parables that sort of illustrate the suddenness of his return and how we should be uh, ready and prepared when he returns. But then he comes back to it in Matthew 25, verse 31, to execute final judgment, that final eschatological judgment, as he comes with great glory and then he sits on his great white throne to execute judgment. So, All this to say, Babylon's fall, that's it. 
She will be there. She will rise no more. She will be found no more. Judgment is final because Christ has returned. Marks the end of the age. In fact, you know, just using the imagery that they use here, right? If you tie a giant millstone to something and toss it in the sea, you don't expect to find it again. That's the whole idea. It's there never to be found again, never to be raised up or dredged up from the sea. Now we mention here, and we're going to read a couple of passages here, so keep your finger here and let's turn to Isaiah 47. Because as I mentioned earlier, this image of the fall of Babylon comes out of a couple of prophecies Major ones. These are two major ones. They come in other places too. But Isaiah chapter 47 is one of them. And here, again, if you've got New King James, you might have a title heading there. It says the humiliation of Babylon. Chapter 47 of Isaiah, verse 1. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne. O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind meal, remove your veil, take off the skirt, uncover the thigh, pass through the rivers. Your nakedness shall be uncovered. Yes, your shame will be seen. I will take vengeance and I will not arbitrate with a man. Final judgment. As for our Redeemer, verse 4, as for our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name, the Holy One of Israel. Sit in silence and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no longer be called the Lady of Kingdoms. I was angry with my people. I have profaned my inheritance and given them into your hand. You showed them no mercy. On the elderly you laid your yoke very heavily, and you said, I shall be a lady forever, so that you did not take these things to heart, nor remember the latter end of them. So there, again, the reason why Babylon's being judged is because of how they treated God's people. Verse 8, therefore, hear this now, you who are, who are given to pleasures, who dwell securely, who say in your heart, I am and there is no one else beside me. I shall not sit as a widow, nor shall I know the loss of children. But these two things shall come to you in a moment in one day, the loss of children and widowhood. They shall come upon you in their fullness because of the multitude of your sorceries, for their, abundance, for their great abundance of your enchant- enchantments. Verse 10, for you have trusted in your wickedness. You have said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge have warped you. And you have said in your heart, I am and there is no one else besides me. Therefore, evil shall come upon you. You shall not know from where it arises. And trouble shall fall upon you. You will not be able to put it off. And desolation shall come upon you suddenly, which you shall not know. Stand now with your enchantments and the multitude of your sorceries in which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you will be able to profit. Perhaps you will prevail. You are wearied in the multitude of your counsels. Let now the astrologers, the stargazers, and the monthly prognosticators stand up and save you from what shall come upon you. Behold, they shall be as stubble. The fire shall burn them. They shall not deliver themselves from the power of the flame. It shall not be a coal to be warmed by, nor a fire to sit before. Thus shall they be to you with whom you have labored, your merchants, from your youth, they shall wander each one to his quarter. No one shall save you. So here, Babylon is judged and is judged for their own arrogance. They're judged for their own hostility, the way they treated God's people. 
They are judged for their own wickedness and their own sorceries. And this imagery from a lot of the imagery that you saw here is is drawn from here and, and used in uh, Revelation chapter 18. But more importantly, in another one, if you turn to Jeremiah 51, Jeremiah chapter 51, it's a long chapter. I'm not going to read all of it. It's like 64 verses long. We'll just read the last few of them. But again, all of chapter 51 you know, talks about, as the heading here, the utter destruction of Babylon. <laughs> you know, the utter destruction. In fact, chapter 50 also talks about judgment on Babylon and Babylonia. So Jeremiah spends quite a bit of time in these latter chapters talking about the judgment of Babylon. But at the end of that chapter, starting in verse 59 of chapter 51, You see here, it says, The word which Jeremiah the prophet commanded Sariah, the son of Neriah, the son of Messiah, when he went with Zedekiah, the king of Judah, to Babylon in the fourth year of his reign. And Sariah was the quartermaster. So Jeremiah wrote in a book all the evil that would come upon Babylon, all these words that are written against Babylon, And Jeremiah said to Sarah, When you arrive in Babylon and see it and read all these words, then you shall say, O Lord, you have spoken against this place, that is Babylon, to cut it off so that none shall remain in it, neither man nor beast, but it shall be desolate forever. Now it shall be, when you have finished reading this book, that you shall tie a stone to it and throw it out into the Euphrates. Then you shall say, Thus Babylon shall sink, and not rise from the catastrophe that I will bring upon her, and they shall be weary. Thus far are the words of Jeremiah. So here Jeremiah talks about how this prophecy that he makes about the destruction of Babylon is written in a book, and then that book in a sense is sealed because it's tied up and thrown into the Euphrates. And then he says that's what's going to happen to you, Babylon. You're going to be cast down. You You will sink. You will not rise. And the catastrophe that I'll bring upon you will be complete. All these things will come against them. So these Old Testament prophets prophesy about the fall of Babylon. And we see that some of this imagery, even in that Jeremiah prophecy, how the imagery of the stone and being cast into the river is drawn here in Revelation 18. So this is the pronouncement of judgment from God on the kingdom of Babylon for how they treated the people of God. And Babylon features heavily in prophetic literature. And that's why Revelation then uses Babylon to speak of this world system that oppresses God's people. So just like Babylon, the country did centuries ago, so too this new sort of world system, this this image of Babylon does this Uh, against God's people. Ever since Nebuchadnezzar conquered Judah in 586 B.C., Babylon has been oppressing the people of God. The kingdom may have fallen centuries ago, but that's why these visions from Daniel, that's why when when we looked at Daniel here as a sermon series, they show all of the world's kingdoms essentially as one beast. They're all part of the same beast, this multi-headed beast. And now here we are at the end of the age. We see now finally Babylon is fallen. 
the final instance and manifestation of it, however that's going to look at the end of the age, I don't know how it's going to look, but whatever it is, at the end of the age, this world system will finally come to an end. She will be fallen, fallen, never to be heard from again. She has been tied to a millstone and cast into the sea to be forgotten. And then the end of Babylon comes when her power to lure and her power to seduce the people of the earth has been broken. That's what we saw earlier in chapter 18 of Revelation, verses 6 through 8. Her judgment has been described here in verse 18, or chapter 18, verse 6. The angel says, Render to her just as she rendered to you, and repay her double according to her works. In the cup which she has mixed, mixed double for her. This is judgment. So whatever she has done is being meted out to her. And of course, in this case, double is being meted out to her. In the measure that she glorified herself and lived luxuriously, in the same measure give her torment and sorrow. For she says in her heart, I sit as queen and am no wit. You know, remember that? Remember that from the prophecy of Babylon, right? You know, Babylon says, I'm no, I'm no widow. I'm never going to be childless. Well, here she is, right? I said, as queen, I'm no widow, she will, and will not see sorrow. Therefore, her plagues will come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judges her. So here we see she has fallen. Her judgment is described. The kings and the merchants lament over her from afar, watching uh, her ruins burn. And now this mighty angel takes up the rubble that's left, and cast into the sea with a millstone tied around her. She is cast into the sea, her, the end of Babylon. And with the fall of Babylon, as we come now to verses 22 and 23, with the fall of Babylon also comes the fall or the end of this age. Verses 22 through 23. The sound of the harpists, musicians, flutists. I thought it was flautists. <laughs> Flutists and trumpeters shall not be heard in you anymore. No craftsman of any craft shall be found in you anymore. And the sound of a millstone shall not be heard in you anymore. The light of a lamp shall not shine in you anymore. And the voice of a bridegroom and bride shall not be heard in you anymore. For your merchants were the great men of the earth. For by your sorcery all the nations were deceived. Now there's a repeated refrain there, right? shall not be heard or not be seen in you anymore, anymore, anymore. Five times, or depending on your translation, you might have no more, no more, no more. Five times. The point is, five times it's repeated as the end of this age is, is coming upon us. With Babylon cast in the sea comes the end of music and entertainment. Comes the end of crafts and trades. With the end of Babylon comes the end of productivity and labor. The very lights themselves refuse to shine, and joy and merriment of marriage go by the wayside. Now all of these things that we've mentioned here, right? Music, entertainment, crafts and trades, marriage and, and productivity and labor and even light, those are all trappings of this age. They're all the things and activities of this age that we're in, this, this age that is passing away. Again, with the coming of Christ in glory, this age comes to a close. His return marks the end of the age. And the new age then is consummated and brought in. Now with His first coming, we have an overlap, right? As you got the already, not yet. But it is end, His return at the end 
The new age is consummated. The old age goes away. Now we may think this is a bad thing, right? None of the things mentioned in verses 22 and 23 are necessarily bad things, with the exception of sorcery, but we'll get to that in a moment. But, you know, music, that's not bad. We worship using music, right? Crafts and trades, that, those aren't bad. Productivity and labor, that's not bad. Marriage, that's a good thing. But they're all part of this age. And then the... the and, and that's what the harlot uses to lure us, right? That's also she, you know, that's what Satan does all the time. Takes the good things of this world and twists them and uses them to, uh, to cause us to sin, right? You know, we, we take the good things and we often use them to evil extremes, right? Eating food is fine. Gluttony is bad. <laughs> you know, things like that. It, it, you know, so we, we take the good things of this world and kind of bring them to an evil extreme. That's what... The harlot does. Or, sometimes it get us to indulge in good things as a substitute to worshiping and glorifying God and enjoying forever. Again, these good things are good things, but if they become, if they get in the way of our worship, if they get in the way of our devotion to God, then they become bad things. So they're not evil in, them, in and of themselves, but they can become and be used and be perverted to evil ends. And again, this is imagery that Revelation uses that is drawn from the Old Testament. Um, just looking at the clock now. I'll just read one passage here. Uh, Isaiah 24. I had two, but I'm only going to read one. Actually, scratch that. I'm going to read Isaiah, um, Jeremiah 25. Game time decision. But I, uh, Jeremiah 25. In Jeremiah 25, this is the prophet uh, prophesying the 70 years of desolation. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, which was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, From the 13th, 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, even to this day, this is the 23rd year in which the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken to you, rising early and speaking, but you have not listened. And the Lord has sent to you all his servants, the prophets, rising early and sending them, but you have not listened nor inclined your ear to hear. They said, Repent now, every one of his evil ways and his evil doings, and dwell in the land that the Lord has given you to your fathers forever and ever. Do not go after other gods to serve them and worship them. Do not... Provoke me to anger with the works of your hands, and I will not harm you. Yet you have not listened to me, says the Lord, that you, might provide, that you might provoke me to anger with the works of your hands to your own hurt. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not heard my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, says the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land, against its inhabitants, and against these nations all around, and will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment, a hissing, and a perpetual desolation. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones and the light of the lamp. Uh, you know, Revelation's drawing right out of there. Verse 11, And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon seventy years. Then it will come to pass when 70 years are complete that I will punish the king of Babylon. 
and all that nation, and the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, says the Lord. And I will make it a perpetual desolation. So I will bring on that land all my words which I have pronounced against it, and all that is written in this book which Jeremiah has prophesied concerning all the nations. So this imagery is drawn out of the Old Testament as well. Now again, we mentioned um, last time and earlier too also in reference to the swiftness of Babylon's judgment. Um, and that's what Jesus says in the uh, Olivet Discourse is so fitting here uh, in Matthew 24. You don't need to turn there. I'm just going to flip to it real quick. But Matthew 24... Verses 37 to 44 talks about how swift the end will come. And we referenced this before. Um, But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days of the flood they were eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The return of the Son of Man, that is Jesus, marks the end of this age. And that is marked by the cessation of the things of this age that we see here in verses 22 and 23. And again, it's interesting to see even that the light of the lamp will shine no more. Now, oftentimes in the Gospels, Jesus would refer to hell as the place of outer darkness, right? And what happens in the outer darkness? you got the weeping and the gnashing of teeth, right? The, the people who are cast into outer darkness where there's no light. We saw this earlier too in the fifth bowl when the fifth bowl was poured out on the kingdom of the beast, it became dark, just like the plague of darkness in Egypt. And in that Egyptian plague, it was said it was a darkness that was to be felt. I don't know how dark dark has to be to be felt, but that sounds pretty dark, if you ask me. Darkness, the no light, that's a judgment thing. No light will shine. And then just a few brief words on this, this uh, word sorcery, which... Interestingly enough, the Greek word is pharmakeia, pharmacy, <laughs> drugs. <laughs> yeah. No offense, hon, but <laughs> my wife works in the, in the pharmakeia industry. <laughs> the word literally means drugs, but also is connected to the occult and sorcery. Now, obviously, there's no such thing as magic, like Harry Potter, wizardry, or, or sorcery like you see in the Lord of the Rings or anything like that. But it is long believed that magic and sorcery is often demonic activity. It's either that or it's sleight of hand, like in the case of the, the, the magicians in Pharaoh's court. They were able, up to a point, to mimic and copy what Moses was doing. Now, it's, it's believed maybe they were using demonic powers, or maybe they're just using sleight of hand. We don't know for sure. But we do know that at some point, they came up to Pharaoh and said, we can't do that. Moses did something, and the, and the magician's like, that's beyond our ability. You know, I don't have enough cards up my sleeve or enough rabbits in my hat to do that one. But we also see this in, the, in 1 Samuel, in the instance of the witch of Endor. If you know that story, the witch of Endor, right? Saul 
um, who has banished all the mediums from Israel, goes in disguise and finds a medium. Now, these are, these are typically witches or, or you know, witch doctors or whatever who, who are, you know, you know, they tea leaves, they read the tea leaves or whatever, they cast the bones or whatever to, to predict the future, right? And um, so Saul goes in disguise and, and says, I, I need you to call up Samuel. And after a little discussion, she does her thing, and then Samuel pops up. Now, it says that she's astonished. So I'm guessing that that was really Samuel and that she didn't actually know that she could, <laughs> she could do that. In other words, I think she was a fraud, but God used it to bring Samuel up to talk to Saul one last time. But anyway, magic, sorcery, all these things, these, even these are used. It, it, this, you know, these are used to deceive and to, to um, draw people away from God, right? The false prophet uses magic tricks and sorcery to draw people away from God. So all these things are gone. That's the point. All these things are gone as the end of the age has been closed as Babylon is cast in the sea, the things of the end of the age are gone. And then finally in verse 24, we see the end of vengeance, if you will. We saw this again last time as well in verse 20, as God has now avenged us, that is the people of God, on Babylon. And here in verse 24, we see the reason for this decisive judgment on Babylon in verse 24, and in her was found the blood of prophets and saints and of all who were slain on the earth. Now, I would argue here, this is one reason why we shouldn't see, necessarily see Babylon as one city because it wouldn't necessarily have all of the blood of all who were slain on the earth, but it is in a sense all of those who have been slain through the witness and testimony of Jesus Christ have died at the hands of Babylon, have died at the hands of that world system that is against God, against uh, the people of God, against her saints. Wherever you see the church under persecution and people dying for their witness, that's part of Babylon. Now, when John is writing the book of Revelation here, Rome is the Babylon of John's day. And Rome would have been responsible for a great deal of the blood of the prophets and the saints. Before the time of Jesus, we know that the Jews were persecuted. And consider how many revolts you hear about in the, in, in the, in the New Testament times, about the revolts against the Romans. Uh, of course, Jesus was executed on Rome's watch. It was Roman centurions that nailed him to the cross, but it was the, the, uh, the, the, the Jews that allowed that to happen. The first 400 years of church history has been one of persecution from Rome. She has been the biggest persecutor of the church for the first 400 so years of, of her history. And even uh, John's audience, this late first century audience in these churches in Asia, they are well acquainted with per, uh, the persecution of the Roman system there. Uh, we looked particularly at the letter to Smyrna, how they are, they are living in the, in the, you know, where Satan dwells, right? You know, and they have the synagogue of Satan there and all these things, how they are under heavy persecution. Now the point of saying this is that this is vengeance for all of the blood that has been spilt, all of the blood that has been spilt by the harlot. The harlot who sits atop the beast and is drunk with the blood of the saints 
Well, her bill is about to come due, right? It's closing time in the bar, and the bill is going to come, and she has to pay the bill, and the, the, the payment is eternal judgment. Again, and we saw in Revelation 18.5, 18.5, we see here that her sins, Babylon's sins, have reached to heaven. They have ascended to heaven. And God has remembered her iniquity. God doesn't forget. Okay? God doesn't forget. He is omniscient. He will not forget anything. And the sins of Babylon have finally reached to heaven's gates itself, and now judgment comes down. God has been patiently enduring the sin and wickedness of Babylon, but He will not do so indefinitely. And once her sins have reached heaven, judgment comes. And as we said, God never forgets. Now in Jesus, our sins are paid in full, right? And God remembers them no more. That's different from forgetting. (laughs) He does not remember them. He chooses not to call them up against us. We are forgiven. That means He is... is in a sense, no longer calls our sins to our account because they have been paid in full. The bill has been paid. Jesus Christ paid the bill for us. And we just sung it. Yeah, Jesus paid it all. All to Him we owe. But God never forgets the sins of the unrepentant. And that is bad news. <laughs> that is an understatement to say that that is bad news. And when judgment comes, it will be relentless In total, that's the point of this passage. It is relentless in total. She has been cast into the sea. Babylon will be found no more. Now, if God didn't avenge his people, then we would have reason to grumble, right? But God, here we see vengeance is complete. Vengeance is complete as as Babylon has been judged. She has been cast out. and And all the blood that she has spilt at the expense of God's people, are now, has now been paid in full with her judgment. And then next time, we'll see rejoicing. Just as we saw a little bit of rejoicing in verse 20, we're going to see a party in heaven breaking out as heaven exalts over the destruction of Babylon. But that's for next time. Here we see the finality of Babylon's judgment.